Welcome to podcast number 37. This one here we're going to entitle At Last and using the information that you find on scene to help make your confined space uh, assessment and incident action plan. We've talked about IEPs, we've talked about a lot of this stuff and parts and pieces. We're going to try to put it all together tonight. Really, this comes from a multitude of sources. We wrote the, or we did the last podcast on IEPs. We got some calls back from some folks around the country, some direct messages, some really good stuff. And part of that was down uh, down in the States, guys setting up cheat sheets basically for incidents around technical rescue. And we've also got some emails from some Canadian fire departments in regards to regulations and what regulations do we need to follow around technical rescue. Now this was a topic we just taught in my fire department. We're getting feedback from people both from the Ronin side and on the fire side in regards to it, which leads me to believe that maybe we need to have some discussions around this. And that's what we're going to do today is discuss this this regulatory and what we need to fill this regulatory hazard assessment gap. To start off then, I'm just going to read an email that I've got from an individual in regards to this topic. Hello Mark, happy holidays. I'm looking for your advice on a confined space question. Great, I love giving advice. Best thing I do. <laughs> Are you aware of any legislation around confined space that would require the arriving off-site or fire department rescue team to produce their own entry permit or documented hazard assessment? Or is it more feasible and legal to be simply added to the worksite entry permit already established? The next what-if question is, what if the confined space does not have a pre-established entry permit and a rescue is required immediately? So there's three kind of things that get brought up to me in this question. I mean, this question has been posed to me in my department when I'm teaching. It was part of the conversation I had when I was chatting with a fellow down with the FDNY in regards to confined space. And the three kind of questions that come out of this is, this hazard assessment entry procedure, can we use an existing one? Is it more feasible to create our own? And what about immediate rescue? So we're going to look at those three things, but there's going to be kind of a big plethora of answer around that. So regarding showing up and using the documented hazard assessment on site, well, let's back the bus up here a little bit and look at what is the hazard assessment? What are we talking about when it comes to hazard assessment? So confined space entry, no matter where you are in the world, we had uh, ISH 24 on here with Daniel talking about confined space entries in Australia. I've taught in Belgium at the beginning of 2018, sorry, beginning of 2019. And, you know, I just Googled confined space death just so I can make the class relevant. And it was a rescue class, but you want to grab the attention of people. I want to make it relevant. I find a confined space death on some ships in Antwerp and lo and behold, there's a guy in the class that was investigating that accident. Can't talk about it. Don't use that one, please, kind of thing. But So it's not just a North American problem. It's not just an OSHA problem. It's not just a Belgian problem or a European problem or an Australian problem. It's a worldwide problem. And to simplify stuff, I'm just going to make some generalities here for this podcast. Hazard assessment entry procedures, entry permit. That's the terms I'm going to use. Generally, 
a document is required for confined spaces before you go in that identifies the hazards to which you're going to be exposed, the mitigation techniques in order to protect yourself from those hazards, and some sort of paperwork you sign in to track the people in there and to identify that you are controlling those hazards. We're just going to call them hazard assessment, entry procedure, entry permits. Also understand that there is a multitude of regulatory bodies out there. If I refer to it as WorkSafe or WCB, that is my old schoolness or my use of regular regulatory terms from where I come from. So back to we arrive on site, can we just get added to the hazard assessment that's there? Now there is a million answers to this. And if you're looking for the silver bullet, you're not going to find it here because this is so very subjective. And I've been thinking about this, and this is actually the second podcast I've done tonight on this, and I deleted the whole first one. And I started entering carabiners into our inventory system, going, how do I put this out so that it makes sense? And so I stopped doing that, and now I'm back to the podcast. But let me put it to you like this. We work in a situation here where we have a two-in, two-out rule. For fire, we enter a structure, we're going to have two people inside, we require two people outside of that structure. I think most people understand that. It's Ours is similar to the NFPA one. I think most people generally get that, two in, two out. Now we get into things like VEIS or VES, depending on where you're from. Vent, enter, isolate, search. This is the, my baby, my baby's in the, you know, upper... You know, Alpha Bravo corner bedroom, there's a window right there. We ladder the window, we smash the window, we close the door, we rescue the baby, down we go. We are no longer in the two-in, two-out rule, but most regulatory bodies will say, if you can affect an immediate rescue, or if, if you can create a positive outcome to that incident, then they'll kind of, you know, allow you to do some other things as long as it's trained and practiced and there's some SOPs and SOGs around it and all the rest of those things that go. Because, and I challenge anybody that's a regulatory officer with any regulatory body in the world that's listening to this to send me a letter to the contrary But generally, regulatory bodies do not want to write down too much about that immediate rescue. Because if they tell you to go and do it, and it goes wrong, then someone's going to wear it. But if they don't tell you to do it, and somebody dies, and the public gets up in arms, then someone's going to wear it. So they generally don't like putting too much pen to paper and saying, you have to be there in four minutes, or you have to be there in two minutes, or yes, you can do this, or no, you can't. They generally leave it up to the discretion of the incident commander on scene. It goes back to our regs. I can deviate from having people on fall protection at a fire scene if I so deem that putting them on fall protection is a greater hazard. I cannot send someone in on a lifeline to a high hazard confined space if I so deem that the addition of a lifeline to that person will create a greater hazard. If I am wrong, there is going to be a mass panel of armchair quarterbacks that are going to take me to court and I am going to hang for that decision. Make no doubt about it. So, with all of that out of the way, we go back to this question. Do I use this hazard assessment? Do I need this hazard assessment? What if it's an immediate rescue? So if we get called for 911, and just hear me out here, 
what's happened. Things didn't go well, or 911 would not have been called. Now, if you're a private rescue team, like we are at Ronin at times, let me, uh, let me just interject and say, if you're on a site that doesn't have the proper documentation, I would raise it up with the client immediately and say, hey, you don't, you're not legal. <laughs> and make that part of it. I mean, this is one of those things where if you're in the private rescue world, at some point you've got to put lives before profit. But you've got to say, hey, you need to protect your people. I'm here as a last resort on the private rescue scene. I'm here if everything else goes wrong, but you need to have everything done right to get in there. I'm here to look and go, hey, you know what? The hazard assessment, this isn't jiving. Let's get out of there before I have to go do a rescue. So private rescue aside, public rescue. 911's been called. We show up. Why did we show up? Well, because there's been an accident or an incident which tells me generally there's been a failure in the hazard assessment. And while accidents truly do happen, that document there is to outline all of the potential hazards that we could find in that space and mitigate them so that we don't have an accident or an incident. So the very fact that you've had to show up does lead some discretion in that hazard assessment to me. There was a problem here. Something got missed. And by all means, you're going to show up. You're going to grab that responsible person that's on site. You're going to go, what happened? Where's your documentation? But I suggest you read it with a you know, grain of salt. Because once again, if it was all 100%, you wouldn't be standing there. So, if you are there, do you really want to get added to their hazard assessment? This is a, a huge question, and that's going to be subjective to every incident you respond to. And this is where those Monday morning armchair quarterbacks are going to have a heyday in court. Because this becomes now down to your personal experience, your personal training, the experience of your team, all of those items where you have the ability to look and go, did what happen in the space is it a negative consequence due to a hole in the hazard assessment somewhere? When I say hole, I mean missed information. Did whoever write this screw this up and not notice that hazard and that's what caused the incident? And if it is what caused the incident, me getting added to the hazard assessment or to the entry documents, who cares? Because I'm going to hurt my people or potentially hurt my people with the same thing that hurt the people that I showed up to help. So at that point, I am going to want to do my own assessment of the situation to bridge that gap. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, even in the most ideal world, you're going to want to do some assessment of that situation and bridge that gap. How many times do you show up in your career to the person with their arm stuck in the machinery? And I mean, maybe this is totally you know, off the wall type thing. But in, in our careers and the people that are listening to this, it happens. And you show up and everybody in the work site is there trying to rip this poor person's arm out of there. And your first question is, has anybody shut this thing down and locked it out yet? And everybody does that blank deer in headlights stare at you like, oh gosh, no. Yeah, great. So when this thing cycles and, you know, rips this person's arm right off and takes all your hands in there too, 
We're going to have just a great time, but that's because it's an emergency and those people aren't used to dealing with emergencies, but you are. So it goes back to that hazard assessment and that gap. You're going to want to take a look and say, hey, what happened here? What did this hazard assessment miss that I'm now showing up to? And if it's some big, glaring, obvious thing, perhaps that hazard assessment and those entry procedures and those documents aren't quite as good as somebody thought they might be. You certainly want to look at them, though. You want to see what hazards have been identified by the owner of the space. You want to know who's in the space, the times they entered. Hopefully, they've got some gas monitoring going on in there, and they've recorded that on their entry permit or their, you know, some sort of documentation, whatever that is in that geographically regulated area, so that you can have some history. But at the end of the day, you're going to need to do your own assessment to bridge a gap, and you're going to need to take that particular documentation there with a little bit of a grain of salt. So that deals with, should I be added to the EP, in my personal opinion, my humble opinion here, Sure, use it, but use it with a grain of salt. And if it's glaringly wrong, hey, the guy was drowned and the person neglected to notice that there was water that was going to be pouring into this space, you might just want to ignore it in its entirety or not ignore it, but give it what it's due. Or should you be doing your own? Always be looking at doing your own. I get it. Regulatory bodies say, hey, I've got to be a CRSP or a CSP or some sort of you know designated, trained and absolutely written off person to do a hazard assessment in a confined space. We're not looking at hazard assessments for every single person entering that space. We're looking at it from what we're experts in, solving problems, solving incidents, mitigating incidents, rescuing people. That's our bailiwick. So this now is when we start looking at this next question. What if rescue is required immediately? So I'm talking confined space here. That was the question that was posed. If you do a general Google search at some educational sites and go, how much oxygen is in a space before I die? Generally around 10%, we start getting cyanosis kicking in. Generally around 8%. um, Some of the statistics out there, you know, eight minutes at 8% oxygen is 100% fatality. I just kind of remember that one because it's 8 and 8 and I'm a fireman. It's easy. You get down to 6% and it's something like unconsciousness and death in 40 seconds. And like I said, you can find other, you know, different sources. They're all going to vary a little bit. But let's just go with, you know, 8 minutes at 8% oxygen, 100% fatality. Let's be liberal with the numbers. Let's say 10 minutes. Let's say we can live for 10 minutes with the oxygen that's in the space. Now, confined space team, at least in my department, is a specialty team. We have one heavy rescue in a city of seven stations. That can be up to a 22-minute run for me to get from my station to the furthest edge of the city. So let's just say, you know, the, the grace of someone is shining down on us today, and this incident is directly beside the fire hall. So I don't have a 22-minute run. And these people notice right away that their individual is down. And we're going to go with atmosphere right now. We'll talk about some other scenarios in a sec. 
And we go, hey, this individual is down. So I called 911 right away. Dispatch knocked it off to us right away. We rolled outside. So maybe we're two minutes into our 10 right now. We get off the truck. We take a look at the paperwork that's there. We look in the space. And we decide that the paperwork's 100%, which I just said is a very unlikely scenario. But we decide, yeah, this paperwork's 100%. Whatever happened, you know, miraculously happened in that space was outside of the paperwork. What are we into it? Maybe three, four minutes? I'm still going to have to monitor before I throw my people in the hole. And say it's a 10-foot space, and I got to monitor every three feet. And, you know, I got 20 feet of hose of tubing on my monitor. And it's going to take 20 seconds then to draw air up that tube. My monitor response time, say it's 15 seconds. Say I got a great monitor, best one on the market. So I'm looking at, you know, say 35 seconds per level. So I'm looking at, you know, almost another two minutes just to monitor. So we're saying we got the hole right next to the, the fire hall. And... All the documentation was 100%, and so whatever happened here was a fluke in that. And I read it really quick, and I understood it right away. And dispatch was 100%, and we monitored immediately. And it was only 10 feet, so I got that. I'm still running about six minutes at this point in time. Six minutes. I said, you know, if we really went with 10, I got four minutes to do this rescue. And I think everybody out there can see where I'm going with this. If I'm going on a regular distance call and the guy's tried to do a rescue on his own before he phoned us, it's totally reasonable, it's going to happen, and I'm even five minutes away and I do my monitoring, get off my truck, look at the documentation and have to even do my own little bit of you know, incident action planning, this person's dead. No two ways to cut it, really. If the oxygen is that low that it is an immediate rescue, and that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about, well, the oxygen's at 15%, he's just loopy, or she's just loopy in the space. We're talking about immediate rescue. If it's an atmospheric problem, what are the chances I'm actually going to pull this? Okay, so it's not atmospheric. Person was in there, and they got blasted by some steam, steam pipe let loose. They got burned. That's an immediate problem. I've got to do an immediate snatch and grab down here. Is the steam pipe still venting when I get on scene or has somebody managed to turn it off and lock it out? Excuse me, because if it's still venting, I'm back to the same problem that caused us to show up to in the beginning. There's piping hot steam in the space. If you see what I'm saying about this with this confined space, if we're showing up as a 911 response to something that requires an immediate rescue. It's not like the house fire where someone's closed the bedroom door and kept the fire at bay for 10 minutes so we could arrive. Generally, if it's bad gas or bad atmosphere, bad oxygen, whatever you want to term it, I'm just going to say a bad atmosphere, they're dead before we get there. If it's a catastrophic failure with inside the space that caused some sort of you know, immediate rescue required accident, there's a good chance that's still a problem when we show up. Yes, we might get the odd one where the person's had the heart attack and they're lying there and their buddies beside them doing CPR. By all means then, hazard assessment, the only thing they might have missed is the medical condition of the people that are in there. We do our bit, we go in, we give them a hand, away we go. 
that's probably pretty rare. I say a guy that slipped on the ladder and has got a broken arm and a spinal injury in a totally fine atmosphere, that's a medical problem in a hole. That's not an immediate required rescue. You know, this is the thing that we need to think, look at from confined space. So from that, we've created an acronym called ATLAST. A-T-L-A-S-T. And now you'll notice through your ground search and rescue types, the acronym LAST, Locate, Access, Stabilize, Transport, has been around for decades. We've added AT to it, which is atmosphere and time. We've done that because the trifecta of confined space problems as we've found them generally can fall into atmosphere, time, and geography. And geography, you're going to note, is in atmosphere, time, locate, access, stabilize, and transport. Geography is throughout. Atmosphere is as well, but atmosphere is such a big problem, and time is such a problem. And we'll discuss that in a minute why. I've given them their own separate, we've given them their own separate you know, part of that acronym. So at last, here it goes. Number one is atmosphere. So atmospheric conditions create quite a few decision points for us regarding confined space rescue. For example, if the atmosphere is not clean, respirable air where we rig, then what we wear and what considerations we have for the patient are all much different than if the atmosphere was clean. We may need to have our edge attendant on breathing air, for instance. We may opt to rig a tripod reeve in order to keep the maximum amount of riggers out of harm's way from that hole if you've got ethyl methyl death coming out of it. Um, we may need to have our rescuers enter the space on supplied air or SCBA, depending on the size. Then we're going to have to look at some hardline or other calm considerations. We need, may need to bring patient air in if our patient is somewhere safe inside of that space and we have to move through a dangerous area to get there. As a confined space rescuer, we need to look at all of these things. So atmosphere, once again, is huge. If you have the ability to have a hazmat team respond with your confined space rescue team, add them to it. Tap it out as a confined space rescue task force, whatever you have to do in your running orders in your city to have confined space and has go together. Because this, a lot of confined space, especially if it's an atmospheric problem, is simply a hazmat problem with a medical component and a rescue component. It's like high angle underground in a hazmat incident. Having the HAZ team come and do some of this monitoring for you would be huge. And we talk about this atmosphere, and we brought it up a little bit when we show up in our initial conversations about this. Now we show up and we do our monitoring. Remember that you need a certain amount of oxygen in your monitor in order for the LEL sensor to work. Talk to your manufacturer about what that is. But generally below 10 to 12% oxygen, some as high as 16, some as low as 8, it depends on what atmospheric monitor you're using, it won't burn the sample as hot, which will create a variation in your LEL. That is a problem for us. And this is why atmosphere is the first thing in the ATLAST, atmosphere, ATLAST acronym as well. Because when we look at this, if we can't get LEL readings properly, 
It doesn't matter what kind of PPE we have. If it goes boom, our people get hurt or killed. which We can't protect from that. So we have to think about this. Now, I said geography comes through all of this. Geography for the atmospheric part starts to look at things like, is there multiple spaces where we can vent and have the exit of that ventilation coming somewhere else? Are we going to have problems venting that space? How big is it? How little is it? So things to think about with the geography. Is there piping down there that's going to screw up our ventilation? So geography plays all through confined space. But once again, so we show up and we start thinking about our incident action plan and we look at that at last acronym as we start thinking about our IAP. Time. Is this a rescue or recovery? Just pure up simple. If we go in and we do our monitoring and we're getting really, really, really low oxygen levels, there's a good chance that's all this is going to be is a recovery. There was an incident in New Westminster, a barge incident. I've mentioned it before. Um, numerous workers died. One firefighter was injured. They had 6% oxygen. They took one breath and the firefighter went down that space. You think about this, that 6% oxygen, you're dead. There, there's nobody in that space that's going to be alive if they're in that atmosphere. Do you write them off? No, you don't. But you've got to think, i got to protect my people before we go in. That's that time factor when you look at it. Um, you might want to ventilate it more. This is the thing about ventilation. It makes it better for our people. It makes it better for anybody that's alive in there as well. As a side note, with that firefighter, they cracked SCBA bottles, lowered them down on ropes, and created a breathing zone around his head, which is what saved his life. So don't underestimate things that you can do outside of sending somebody in to rescue that patient. Um... The next one, we get into our regular last acronym. So, <clears throat> locate. Unlike a high angle rescue, where a lot of times you can see the person there, this here with the confined space, you may actually have to send in some sort of reconnaissance team, a recce team, a recon team, in order to find the patient. If that is the case, if you're showing up to a big space, you need to take a look and go, hey, I'm going to need to deploy a recce team. They may need things like their own internal rigging kit, their own gas monitor. If the air is unknown, which it's going to be a lot of times for us, they're probably going to have to be on air. We have to protect them. We have to assume the worst as they move through, and they need to radio back to command and go, hey, excuse me, we've got good air up to this point. We've got you know, good air all the way to the patient. They need to also radio back geographical issues they're coming across. Hey, we're going to need another internal rigging team in here to, you know, rig this 40-foot vertical section in this, you know, 10-story deep uh, container ship that we're wandering into. These are things that you have to take into consideration. So locate. So once again, you're the incident commander. You go up on site. You grab the paperwork that's there. You know there's a problem with the paperwork, though, because there's a problem in the space. You start going through at last as you start making your incident plan. Atmosphere, how is it? Time, how long have we been doing this? Locate, do we know where the person is or do I have to send in a reconnaissance team? Uh, 
Access. Once we get to the patient, do we have to access them? Are they working down there on ropes? Are they on scaffolding? Is there going to be an access issue? As well, think about the access issues around you. I steal from the USAR world the six-sided size up when I go to a confined space incident. You think about a barge. It's got six sides to it. Are there six sides with entry points? No. But if our barge is leaking from one of those sides, does it affect our entry? Absolutely. So, you know, as you show up and you think about your ATLAST acronym and your trifecta of problems being, you know, primarily time, atmosphere, and geography, and as you move through this to create your IAP and you get your strategies going downrange and you're identifying those hazards that your people might come up to, and you grab that hazard assessment, Think about looking at it from a six-sided size up as a problem. Think about things like what's your extrication plan? What's your reconnaissance plan? Where's your casualty collection point going to be? What's your comms plan? Is comms going to work in there? And I mention all this in access because when we talk about access, we don't just mean access. You know, we've located the patient, now we need to access them. But also access, when we extract them out of that space, are we somewhere where medical care can get to? Or are we going to have to walk this patient or these patients down catwalks? Are we on an elevated platform? When you look at a lot of the industry around your first due area, you'll find hoppers that are 30 feet in the air, bag houses that are 20 feet off the ground, barges where your 15 by 18 inch hatch is on the outside of the barge fence on a little walkway that's usually about three feet wide on the side of it. Access. How do we access that point with further medical care? Or do we have to send our people with those patients out to our casualty collection point? And that's why cheat sheets are wonderful if you can't think of all of this under access as you're sitting there and making this plan in your head and go, Casualty collection point. Do I have to have a team ferry people there or I can get it close enough that I can have medics with me? Or is this ethyl methyl death problem coming out of this space, you know, going to negate that, that I'm not going to be able to have other responders on this area? Or because I've done a six-sided size up and I'm looking at my barge and I realize that there's three other holes on this barge. Have we located this person far enough away that there might be a better rescue extrication point as part of my extrication plan. I throw kind of comms into access as well because there's really nowhere else to put it. If you're doing a military orders uh, process, you'll have a spot for comms. If you're looking more for your think, plan, act, we don't worry about comms when we go to your average structure fire. Yeah, when we start getting into high rises and stuff, you repeaters, multiple channels, comms becomes a little bit more of an issue. But in something like this, Comms could be huge. You could be in a side of a space where you can't get any comms to the outside, and the space could be inside of an industrial facility where you don't have access with your radio outside as well. So you may have to take that into consideration. So access. Think about that when you're doing this incident action plan in your head and you know filling this gap in between the hazard assessment that's on scene and what you've got to do. All right, stabilize. Once again, this trifecta comes into play. We talk about if there's bad atmosphere, do we bring air in for the patient? 
if the patient's unconscious in there, do we have some sort of like a Lucas machine to do CPR or some sort of breathing machine that the mine rescue teams use in order to breathe for this patient while we bring them through the space? Now, geographically speaking, what kind of packaging device can we use to get this person out of here? And back to time and atmosphere, is the atmosphere good enough to give us enough time that if we're in this container ship, can we have them remove some of the containers beside us and maybe then we get a 53 foot long by 10 foot wide space that we can get out of and we could put them, you know, at that point, horizontally, head slightly elevated in a vacuum splint and a nice Stokes basket and raise them out, 100% gold standard of care sort of thing. But if we're in that barge with the 18 by 15 inch oval hatch, we're not even getting a sked out of there. We're not getting a spec pack or a rapavac or any sort of device dragon lifts out of that space. We're using a webbing harness or a C Tom's pocket harness or a pencil triangle or something like that at this point. And if they've got a spinal injury, that's just the nature of the beast because the geography is going to dictate the packaging that we're going to be able to use. That's something else you have to think about on the way in as part of your extrication plan. We're doing hazards, and those hazards in our confined space and that geography and the atmosphere and the time are going to dictate a lot of these things for you. Hey, it's a bad atmosphere. It's not bad enough that they're dead, but we're going to have to put them on air. The space entry is too small for us to use stuff for spinal precautions. We're going to have to put them in this. And these are things that you're going to have to figure out. Write them down. We did a podcast on IAPs. You know, we're not getting into that part of it, but you've got to fill those gaps and you've got to identify the hazards that are out there to help you with this. Transport. Transport's the actual rope rescue, but it's more than that because if you get them out of that space, You might have to walk them. You might have to actually do a high angle to get them down to somewhere else. So that's all part of it as well. So with your at last, I want you to be thinking about not only the strategies and tactics for your IAP, but also the hazards and making that gap between your hazard assessment and what you're actually going to have to do to keep your people safe. Now with this, I want to talk about one other item. And that item is air exchanges. Because we get a lot of this with confined space where people talk about, well, I'll just ventilate and we'll go. The ventilation that you're talking about in that case is known in the industry as dilution ventilation, positive pressure mechanical ventilation. There is other ventilation out there. You can get LEV, local exhaust ventilation. You can get um, pneumatics. There's all sorts of stuff you can do. Generally, in confined space rescue, we're showing up with a fan, we're putting ducting on it, and we're blowing it into a hole. If there is not an exit hole, six-sided size up, remember? Other ways to get people out, other ways to get air out. Perhaps we don't have to run bad air next to our people. Ideal situation. But generally, okay, we've got this going in. On the hazard assessment somewhere, you are going to see a ventilation calculation. And it's going to say X number of CFM per minute in order to get so many air exchanges. Now, I say this because it is an important part of what we do. If that information is not there, we have to do it ourselves. Now, this is a rough field formula. 
And I'm saying this, you know, take this with a grain of salt. This is like doing, you know, field formulas for pumping, trying to pass your pump exam. Rough numbers to exchange, (laughs) easy for me to say, to achieve 20 air exchanges per hour, divide the volume of the space by three. So I've got a 9,000 cubic foot space. I divide it by three. I need 3,000 CFM, cubic feet per minute, in order to get 20 air exchanges in an hour. Obviously, people are going, that seems like a lot. It is a lot. If you're running your standard air systems, explosive fan, the yellow one with the ducting on it that needs to be grounded and bonded, with no ducting free airflow, that thing's like 1,500 CFM. 9,000 cubic foot space, 3,000 CFM. Think about that. If that's not in the hazard assessment, it's something you need to know. So now you're going, great. What's an air exchange? An air exchange um, is a little bit difficult to understand at times, but what we're going to look at here is basically what we need to know for rescue. And the easiest way to look at this is like Kool-Aid in a glass. If I have a glass of orange Kool-Aid, you know, the dude on the skateboard smashing through the brick wall, I'm probably dating myself, and he's got the big glass of orange Kool-Aid. If I dump another glass of pure water in there, I'm still going to see orange, aren't I? Because in order to remove every molecule of that orange Kool-Aid, it's probably going to take three, four glasses. At first, I'm going to see lots of orange Kool-Aid coming out of, that, out of that glass. But as I lose orange Kool-Aid and there's less in the glass, I'm now losing as much or more good water as I am orange Kool-Aid. And so to get rid of that last little bit of orange Kool-Aid takes quite a lot. Air exchanges is the same idea. So an air exchange is basically taking air and putting it into a space and removing the same amount of volume of air out of the space. So when we talk about air exchanges, then we go, okay, there's a formula, and this formula is highly dependent on lots of things, predominantly atmosphere and geography. Back to, now you see why I use atmosphere, time, and geography so much. And time on this case is how much time I need in order to vent. So, if I have a bad atmosphere, and the geography of the space is tough to ventilate, this formula doesn't work quite as well. If my atmosphere is stratified, if the temperature is such that it's causing me difficulties with my ventilation, if I'm just bad at ventilating and you know I'm short-circuiting or I'm recirculating my vent, recirculating being um, coming out and stuffing it back, you know, my exit being too close to my entry, just recirculating bad air, short-circuiting being the density of the gas at the bottom of the space is such that my ventilation efforts are bouncing off of that and it's not cleaning out all the really bad stuff at the bottom. I'm just kind of cursory ventilating, right? So if any of these are happening, I'm not going to get my ideal formula here. But let's look at the formula and go, Generally, take the desired ventilation, sorry, the desired percentage of oxygen, 20.9, the actual oxygen in the space, add those together, divide by two. That'll give you your new amount of oxygen with an air exchange. 
So at one air exchange, if I have 10% oxygen in my space, all right, so 10%, my ideal is 20.9, add those together, divide by two, I get 15.45% oxygen. So with one air exchange, I've gone from 10% oxygen to 15.45. Remember what I said about the Kool-Aid? At first, you get a lot of really bad crap out fast because there's lots of bad crap to get out. But as it gets cleaner and cleaner, it gets harder to get those little pieces out, but we need them out in order for people to breathe. So I'm at 15.45. My second air exchange, 15.45 plus 20.9 divided by 2, I'm at 18.2%. But the other thing that you see about this is I get rid of the bad stuff pretty quick we can live with 18.2%. Heck, we can live with 15.42. man, we're getting down to not so much. But we can make a good difference quickly with ventilation. All right, new number, 18.2. Add it to my 20.9, divide by 2, I get 19.6. All right, that's the third air exchange. Fourth air exchange, 19.6 plus 20.9 divided by 2, I'm at 20.3% oxygen. See what I'm saying now? It's getting tougher and tougher to find and expel those pieces of oxygen. And this is why I say this formula is like, you know, the ideal situation formula. When we get in there with temperature stratification of gases, geographic weirdness in there, different entries and exit ports, we're not going to get the ideal. Okay, so fifth air exchange, 20.6. Sixth air exchange, 20.8. In reality, it's going to be seven or eight air exchanges to get our 20.9% oxygen. That was starting at 10% oxygen. This is why we kind of say, hey, high hazard, that's what we're assuming. We want 20 air exchanges in an hour. 20 air exchanges. We just did... 7 to 8 at 10% to get to 20.8%. So we're saying, hey, if we're down to 6, 8% oxygen into this space, let's ram it with 20 air exchanges an hour. That'll start getting some of that bad stuff out of there really quickly so that we can add some breathability and some livability in that space. And it's an easy math number in the field. What's my volume? Divide it by 3 that's about as much CFM that I need to push in in order to get my 20 air exchanges. As a rescuer, that is good for me to know. My six-sided size up, once again, I'm getting length, width, height. All I got to do is just some rough numbers, times, 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 divide by three, gives me a number. That's how much I have to pump in there. It also makes me understand, though, that, excuse me again, if my fan won't give me that, then that has to play into my head as well. I may have to worry more about PPE, air for my patients, all this sort of stuff. So, once again, we show up, there's a hazard assessment on scene. I leave it up to you whether you want to explicitly use it. I really dissuade you of that idea. Use it sparingly, see what information's on there, see where the gaps are, look at the ventilation. Then, with your six-sided size up, thinking about extrication plans, thinking about comms plans, thinking about where your casualty collection point's going to be, 
and your at last acronym, atmosphere, time, locate, access, stabilize, and transport. Start identifying the hazards that are missed in the hazard assessment. Start identifying your strategies. Start creating your IEP. Hopefully, I've answered some questions out there.